This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and today I have an incredibly packed show for you. Uh, Later in the hour I'll be talking to Brow Books publisher Sam Cooney. Listeners uh, to this show and others will be familiar with quarterly literary attack journal The Lifted Brow. But Brow Books, which has really only been around since 2016, has been making waves with a very astonishing list of books, two of which attracted major awards, uh, Maria Tamarkin's Axiomatic and Jamie Marina Lau's Pink Mountain on Locust Island. So stay tuned for that. But first, the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards were announced last week. It was a moving ceremony. Beruz Bichani, a Kurdish-Iranian journalist and asylum seeker stranded on Manus Island, won the non-fiction and overall award for his incredible Incredible book, No Friend But the Mountains. It was an incredibly levelling moment as he accepted his award over a dodgy connection on WhatsApp. And I think not one of us present are likely to ever forget it. So it's fitting that the winner of the Fiction Prize, The Madonna of the Mountains, Elise Valmorbida, has also written a book that contextualises a particularly dark period, uh, but this time in Italian politics. The rise of fascism in Italy after the First World War uh, in the book uh, that Elise has written, The Madonna of the Mountains, is seen through the lens of a young woman in a highly patriarchal society. She's grappling with sometimes violent banalities of life and her own dawning autonomy. I caught up with author Elise Valmorbida after her win last week. The interview is a long one, so settle in and enjoy. Elise Valmorbida, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. So your book, The Madonna of the Mountains, uh, is a wonderful book that's set in the mountains of Italy and... Uh, at a time, you know, in the early 1920s, right uh, after the First World War, and it follows the journey of a young woman who's 25 but already deemed an old maid. Uh, it's quite a uh, moving journey, even though she travels, you know, really only uh, a very short distance in terms of her physical movement. But in terms of the the time period she covers, uh, it's extraordinary. I'd love you to talk about this book uh, and where it came from. Uh, But perhaps if you don't mind setting up the book so people can uh, understand a little bit of what it's about. Sure. It's uh, the story of a woman called Maria Vittoria. And as you said, she's 25 at the start of the book in 1923. And it's a time of... um, Great bleakness, actually, because the First World War has happened, and that was a particularly um, extreme experience for the people in the mountains with the Austrian invasion and um, the, you know the, the extremity of the weather and the, the landscape there in the first place, and people who were not very well off. And having recovered from that, the Spanish flu, the fact that the male population had been decimated, people had been evacuated, brought back, um, re-establishing themselves, um, the crash is yet to come. Um, But meanwhile, Mussolini has taken power in Italy, and that's something that takes a while to percolate through to these people in terms of their understanding of what's going on in terms of national politics. 
And as you said, uh, the book itself goes through these different periods and we uh, experience the development of fascism, the way it reaches its uh, hands or fingers into further areas of life and the Second World War and then the period of reconstruction after that war. And this woman who starts the book, who is uh, very innocent, very unaware, quite naive, and has very limited opportunities, very, very few options in terms of what will make her sense of of value uh, of herself. And by the end of the book, she is a different person. She's not um, a crazy, wild, modern feminist hero by any means, but she's someone who's learned her strengths. She's learned to survive. She's learned to uh, assume some kind of power. But it's not been easy. It's a very, very difficult journey for her. This book is an incredibly detailed uh, book in many ways in terms of the language and the writing. It's very rich. Uh, it's filled with the minutiae of Maria, who is our central character's life. Uh, and it, as a result, is really the, the levels of empathy you have for this woman are, are very high because you really do feel like you experience her day-to-day with her through this book. Um, even though there are quite significant time leaps between things, you get the sense of how grounded she is in her daily tasks, in the work that she does, in making food for her family, in caring for her husband, um, in the brutality of the life that she lives as well because her husband is pretty handy. Let's just say he's, uh, you know, like... He hits her um, and she accepts that as part of the the cost of marriage. Uh, It's a really quite, um, it's quite an intense uh, book on many levels and not just when we get to the stage where, you know, the rise of fascism becomes uh, very obvious. Can you talk a little bit about where this character came from? She feels so real uh, that I do wonder how you've gotten under the skin of her and her her whole experience mm. well, I, had, I had in mind uh, I know it sounds very abstract in a way but uh, the idea of an Italian mother courage someone who's um, not an obvious heroine you know she's not pretty she's not cute she's um, not an obviously winsome kind of person she's very tough she's very much of the earth and she's canny as well very resourceful resilient and that to me is is quite interesting but as I said before she's not by any means a feminist hero um she's inspired by lots of women i know or have um heard about and understood and tons and tons and tons of research but um it's it's also possibly a kind of person if you like that uh is likely to appear in this sort of environment it's a very tough environment where she starts at the time is tough you know as i mentioned before you know the the issues between wars, during wars, um, the landscape, you know, if you're living in these extreme uh, conditions, that also brings it about a kind of toughness. You know, these are people who, in her case, for example, you mentioned the, uh, the detail of her life. You know, she's doing the washing, the annual washing for the family uh, in, a, in a cold mountain river. It's snowmelt, so it's rushing, rushing water, and it's heaving heavy loads, and she's got arms like a man. She's a strong, strong woman. Uh, the work is very detailed and, you know, there are these expressions that that pepper these people's lives, like you eat so that you can work and you work in order to be able to eat. And it becomes this kind of 
uh, circle of, of endless work. Work is absolutely the obsession. Absolutely. And it's sort of interesting as well because uh, this is like such an entrenched patriarchal society and it is so a part of the fabric of everything. And the way it's kind of like you've wound it in, you see how it works and how people have accepted their places within it. Um, and even that there's this kind of implicit justification that, you know, the reason why boys are valued is because then they will look after the family um, and the reason why girls aren't is because they're a burden and a cost and it's so fascinating how that's then you know so a part of this character's life from the very beginning mm. um, she's literally like uh, treated like like a horse you know mm. um, to be traded um, with you know a, a husband and she is far from you know I think a lot of characters that are introduced are, are sort of rebellious or aware of their situation she's very much within it and is longing to have a husband and is is kind of happy to be in that position um it's a very kind of uh, uncomfortable um place to sit as a reader but at the same time you really do feel and grow with the character as a result um and, and it's an incredible experience uh, i have to say if not an entirely comfortable one um but one of the things about this book, which I think I've mentioned already, is that the, the language use within it is really what captivates. Uh, and I, I would love you to share some of that with the listeners here so that they get a sense of what it is that they can expect in this book that, um, you know, you've so carefully woven these um, this incredible sort of, um, I don't know, wordplay that, that really brings you into these characters' lives. Okay, I'll just, I'll just read you a, a small section from the beginning. Um just to give you a feel for, for how it starts. And I, I will say, it's not a book about finding a husband. Um, <laughs> the very first line of the book is, her father has gone to find her a husband. Chapter one, the husband has been found. That's done. You know, that's, that's, that's you know, uh, job done, effectively. Um, and I'm also interested to, to hear the way you talk about her relationship with her husband. I don't think she does quite accept it. She's actually quite mm. shocked. But I think the point is, there's no choice. What do you do? Where do you go? Mm. What 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 are your choices in that situation when you're lucky? You feel lucky to have been married at well, all. She's been as that's a society, her vocation. Exactly, yeah. that's your vocation. And we're talking at a time that didn't offer, say, women's refuges or a benefit system, or even the sense of validation that women might have elsewhere, a sense of career, even the rights to children all of that sort of um, context that we take for granted. And yet, even now, with that context, we have the statistics are absolutely astounding. The women who live in marriages that are difficult, much more difficult than this one too. So I, I, I sort of, I have to temper that one just, mm. just, just slightly. And there is a rebellion that she has, a, a sort of rebellion that happens there in, is, in the, there later is. on in the book as well, isn't there? That yeah. she does, um, she does kind of, you know, uh, I think find a, a sense of her own, you know, take her body back in a way from that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think her two daughters as well, for me, are where the hope lies mm. because both of the daughters, in their different ways, are part of that new generation. That's uh, a post-war generation and I think they're, they've got much more sense of, of confidence in themselves and much more possibility lies before them. So one is, is more intelligent and is going to have more education as well and one is more um, uh, fierce in a way, more uh, rebellious, more uh, prepared to 
do what she wants to do to suit herself, really, rather than to please religion or to please parents or to please authority. And I think that's that's something else that interested me so much, that interplay of, of different kinds of authority, whether it was religious or political or um, cultural, you know, the legacy of pe- peasant culture in this environment. And when you're talking about people or writing about people who have very few opportunities to work apart from you know the lot that that life has has given them very little education um it's a very conscribed world it's not the world that we can take for granted where people come and go and you know explore opportunities in different places and for them migration is is a really it's like going to the moon it's a really big 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 journey Elise, I would love you to take us into that world now a little bit through your words so this is 1923 Her father has gone to find her a husband. He's taken his mule, a photograph and a pack of food, homemade soppressa sausage, cold polenta, a little flask of wine. No need to take water. The world is full of water. It's springtime, when a betrothal might happen, as sudden as a wild cyclamen from a wet rock, as sweet as a tiny violet fed by melting mountain snow. Maria Vittoria is embroidering a sheet for her dowry trunk. Everyone is working hard, making use of the light. Twelve huddled households, chopping, fixing, hammering, cooking, washing, hoeing, setting traps, pruning vines, stripping and weaving white willow, planting the tough seeds, oats, tobacco, cabbage, onions, peas, and the animals are making their usual racket, but the whole contra feels wanting without her father, a body without a head. In his breast pocket, he has the only photograph there is of her, made when she was 17, together with her sisters, brothers, grandparents and parents. She's almost unmarriageable now, at 25 years old, but she's strong and healthy, and her little sister Egidia says she's pretty. It's just bad luck, or God's will, or destiny, that there are no eligible men in this valley or the next one, just sickly inbreds and hunchbacks, and men mutilated by the Austrians. It doesn't help that the Contra is so hard to get to, so far from the towns. And her father won't accept the hand of just anyone. He has his name and standing to consider. He owns some property. He's a man of business. He even has his notepaper with his name printed on it. Before the photograph, before the evacuation, Maria had a proposal. The fellow had come all the way from Villafranca. He had documents saying he didn't have to fight any more, that he'd have a proper pension and special privileges. But he'd lost a finger and an eye. Who knows what else is missing, her father said when he turned the offer down. We can do better than that. And Mama said what everyone says, all the cousins, all the women, no se rifiuta nessung, nianca se le gobo estorto. Refused nobody, even if he's hunchbacked and crooked. And Papa told her to shut up with her stupid sayings. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. This show is Backstory, and I'm speaking with author Elise Valmorbida about her wonderful book, The Madonna of the Mountains. Elise, uh, of course, we have to talk about what happened uh, last night. Uh, you were the winner of a quite significant prize uh, here in Victoria, the uh, Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction. Um, I think it's an incredibly deserved win. How did you feel about this recognition? 
completely overwhelmed. I mean, it's just one of the most uh, gorgeous and lovely surprises to have this sort of reward. You know, this book has taken me a good seven years to research and write. And when you're writing, you have no idea if it will amount to a hill of beans or or anything. You have no sense of, of where it's going to go. So, there are times when you wonder why you're doing it, but there's sort of no choice. And to, to have this kind of uh, validation from a bunch of strangers, it's not my mum saying, I really like your work, darling. You know, it's its very, very, very um, exciting. It's, uh, it's a great sense of validation. And it's made my creative writing students very excited. It's made my, ha- my family very happy. It's made everyone pretty happy. So... What can we say? Joy. <laughs> I think as well it was a, an interesting night, obviously. Uh, you know, the the nonfiction prize and the overall prize went to Baruz Bhutani, yes. a, a man who um, tried to arrive to Australia as an asylum seeker and has been held uh, on Manus and mm-hmm. is now still on Manus uh, Island in Papua New Guinea. Um, it's a, obviously something that a burden that Australians must, must uh, be very aware that they bear. Um, but I think it was really interesting in the context of that to to read your book and to think about some of the issues that are raised here about the rise of fascism um, in Italy and how, you know, the people live uncomfortably beside something, um, are implicated by it, um, you know, can't be separated from it. Uh, it's sort of, you know, the central character here, Maria and her husband, both ultimately become members of the fascist party because, you know, perhaps her husband through inclination early on um, but Maria herself, because she has no choice uh, and, you know, this is her way to help her family survive. Uh, It's a really um, interesting place to sit. Can you talk about how you sort of wound those elements in and and what you were trying to sort of say through some of this, some of the kind of uh, coverage that you've done here? Mm, It's a really difficult and really interesting area because, you know, sometimes I think with the retrospective uh, view that we have, we might say, oh, if I were living then, I wouldn't have done this or I would have done that. And people are very pure about their morality or their um, ethics. And and I think, my goodness, if you were living then and you had these resources and this opportunity, really, really, would you risk life and limb and the health and safety of your whole family, perhaps even your whole village, to do something which was against the law, something which was illegal? And, and if illegal means... Um, uh, talking to someone who is possibly an escaped prisoner of war or a deserter, possibly an ally, possibly um, hiding someone in your cellar. Um, but even more innocent things like having a camera or a radio, um, uh, possessing pigeons, which once upon a time you might have possessed to eat, but of course now might be seen as a communication symbol. And this, of course, become, became very, very intense during the, the Nazi fascist period. You know, there's a very specific period of the last couple of years of the war where um, the Allies were wor- working their way up Italy from the south, but um, initially had surrendered, but the Nazis had basically occupied northern Italy and uh, had declared the Repubblica Sociale Italiana. So the northern Italians, peasants, anyone, everyone, was were, were under this um, kind of double occupation, if you like. And the Nazis were even more destructive than they might have been otherwise because, of course, they were very angry with the Italians for not being on their side. They were trying to uh, make things as difficult for the Allies as possible. And meanwhile, you had partisans sabotaging whatever they could to make things as difficult as possible for the Nazis and the fascists. So in amongst all of that, you have poor people like Maria Vittoria and everyone else, the uh, 
the average person, I don't know what such a thing is, but an ordinary person, someone who isn't a political leader, someone who's not a general, someone who's not prepared to be a, a hero or a resistance leader. And there are many of those people. That's most people. Mm. They're the people who rub along, have kids to feed, don't want their son to be you know, killed or hang on a tree as you know, an example because he dared to you know, send messages from here to there on behalf of some dodgy man who turned up and said he was a spy you know it's it's a it's a crazy crazy testing world and i think morality morality becomes very mucky and maria is a very interesting character because she does have a, a sense of a moral compass a very strong one mm. um she sees the the problems uh with the fascist belief systems uh she you know her cousin who you know is very much as she puts it has fanatical political views that include you know uh, these kind of views on ethnic cleansing etc and you know she sees uh, and hates these things but at the same time is literally uh, in in the end sleeping with the enemy to both survive but also through this complicated love-hate relationship because this is her literal family Mm. Uh, it's a really actually I think a very honest uh, approach to looking at these things that you know everyone is both uh, uh, oppressed and implicated by in some way when when these uh, political regimes arise um it's not it's not an uncomplicated relationship mm. um to to kind of delve a little bit into uh, as well the characters of the book that sort of highlight things we are mostly in maria's perspective early on in the book um until we sort of jump into the perspective of of a kind of character that's uh, floating around at that time delfina who um is both of the family but also a reflection of of what they're trying to pretend isn't them um she is you know, seemingly mentally unwell, but is a real truth teller about the things that they don't want to look at um, look at in their society. Uh, can you talk a bit about that character? You just summarised her beautifully. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't do a better job. That's absolutely superb. Absolutely, she she says spontaneously, "I am your face in the water," and um, I mean that to say what it says. She's you're absolutely right. I, apart from just repeating <laughs> your words, I don't know what to say. I. I She's called Delfina for a reason. Um, it's a common and an, and an ordinary Italian name for a woman, particularly uh, in this region and at, at that time. But the origins of the name um, hark back to the Delphic Oracle, and that's why I chose that name. And I w- did want her to be prophetic and to have some kind of vision, but she does also have mental health issues. She's someone who's um, beyond the borders of the, the very kind of strict confines of that society. And... You know, she's everything Maria fears, and she's one step away from um, Maria's life, if you like. You know, Maria can sense how close she is to statelessness, poverty, uh, homelessness, uh, madness, um, disgrace. She is, she is disgraceful. Mm-hmm. And she's very, very, very close to nature, as all these people are. She's even closer because she lives in amongst it. She doesn't even have a house. Um, and I... I was kind of obsessed with Delphina because of that connection with with nature and her embeddedness in the landscape and her absolute disregard for religion and all those um, structures that people make in terms of power. She's completely wild in relation to that especially in in a you know in this scenario where everyone is so burdened by their daily tasks which you describe with such exactness uh, and and beauty as well there's such a poetry to the way you describe them the the descriptions of um you know maria 
Victoria preparing for her her wedding and how she, you know, cares for and, you know, nudges the, the linens into cleanliness is this, you know, she's carrying them these, like, you know, like things that weigh as much as a human um, and, like, what she has to do just to wash them to make the water run clean is just uh, such an extraordinary thing to read through. How did you get the visceral uh, writing in here? How, how did you get that sense of, um, you know, a real solidity to, to what you've written? I guess I just tried very hard to imagine what it must be like, and I did a lot of research, and I found the research very challenging because of course this is mostly not written about when you research a period like this it's very easy to find out about military campaigns or political maneuvers or you know mass movements of people and usually men but to find out about women's lives is difficult unless they're famous or aristocratic or or a leader of some kind um and to find out about those little details that are not little details they're the things that consume those people's lives every day i i I almost almost wanted to have a an informally anthropological view mm. of it. I wanted to record it because it's a way of life that has disappeared. Uh, perhaps there are remnants, but it pretty much has disappeared. And I have notes and notebooks from decades ago, sitting with you know an elderly aunt who's no longer alive, but um, you know talking, referring to the days when they did the washing without plumbing. And I'd say, you what? You know, how? What? You know, because, of course, brought up in suburban Melbourne, how do you do the washing without plumbing? It's a mystery. And so next thing you know, the notebook's out and she's telling me about the ash cloth and, you know, how do you clean things with ashes, you know, and that whole process. So I had notes on that sort of um, detail. These were things that she remembered from a long time before or perhaps she'd heard about, but I think she knew them from memory, her personal memory. So researching... Uh, such a thing is necessary because, of course, one little anecdote by an aunt over over a kitchen table isn't enough to really create a chapter or a section of a book that is well written around that. And so I did lots and lots of research in Italy, uh, Italian websites, and you find these um, special interest websites, women's websites very often, and people who have memories and are talking about their grandmothers. And that's how I got much more of that kind of visceral detail. And then you find yourself, I found myself weighing things and trying to lift things and you know, trying to visualise as, as yeah. vividly as possible. And I'm a designer. Uh, I'm very visually inclined. So I need to very, very vividly see what I'm writing about. I can't just sort of skim over it with with pretty words it really has to be something that I feel is vividly imagined you absolutely can feel that in the writing um you know feel the weight of it um literally she's carrying you know the washing um it also gives a heft to the the you know and centers the work of women here in a way that I actually feel I haven't seen done quite so completely. Um, you know, it, this is the world that we're in, and this is the, and the gravity given to it is exactly what it should be because it is, um, you know, the the world around which uh, Maria's life revolves. Um, and this I want to talk more about because she gains in you know in kind of societal power as things go on. Um, there's a little turning point moment um, when, not to give too much away, but her husband has to is is absent for a period of time, uh, like during the fascist regime. And um, she, her son, who's then in his late teens, says, "I'm the boss now." And she says to him, well, you're the head of the house, but, um, you know, 
I am the boss. <laughs> and I, you can see that she's starting to take her place, not just in her world, in the place she's been given, but she's starting to take her place as the matriarch she will become. Um, that It's a really, uh, you feel her, her growing power because you've walked with her there. Um, how did you feel kind of like drawing that out in increments and leading on to where her daughters would end up? That's um that is a pivotal scene, and I remember when it happened, it came uh, strangely effortlessly. It just felt like it had to happen then. So she acknowledges his masculinity, and in her words, um, that gives him, you know, priority in a way or seniority. But she is absolutely not going to have it. It is absolutely her moment to say, "I'm I'm the boss. This is my show," um, and she's not doing it with joy. It's not a joyful moment by any means, but. I guess that scene just had to happen. I just thought, what does this woman do in the situation when the man that she has been told is is the structure, you know, the vine post where she is the weak and wandering vine, when that vine post has been removed, what on earth does the weak and wandering vine, that's all in inverted commas, what does that weak and wandering vine do? Does that weak and wandering vine fall over, flop, wilt. No, she doesn't. And I felt that those moments where she grows each time is her um, gathering her strength and not just her muscular strength because she has plenty of that, but a sense of strength in herself and who she is and a sense of value of who she is. So someone and something beyond her usefulness as, as a cook and as a person who cleans and as a person who is a wife, who obeys her husband, someone who goes beyond that. And I guess, in a way, that's a feminist journey, but it's a very incremental, unspoken, unpolitical feminist journey for her. It's certainly, feminism is not something she would identify with at all. And meanwhile, you have the church in the background mm. with its messaging. And you have Maria communicating with the Madonna all the way through, and the Madonna is no feminist either in this case. She's, she's a, a very vital uh, character for Maria. In, in a sense, she, she works as a kind of projection and a kind of conscience, but she is also meant to be kind of magic as well. You know, this is Italy. Mm. Statues bleed and cry. and A real animism throughout. Yeah, tongues and liquefy <laughs> and, you know, objects, la- you know, visceral objects last for a thousand years. Const- you know, they're, they're moist forever in their, in their glass box you know this is this is part of belief so and it is there is a real sense of that that cult of maria i guess yes. because all of the women uh, are called maria with the you yes. know another name attached and of, yep. um of course then you know there, there is like very little mention of um you know of christ it's all um the madonna and i think that's a really it's a, a really kind of strong element that runs through it as is the strength of maria and all the marias um Elise, it's a really uh, complicated question, I guess, um, where one goes after writing a book like this. Where, where has this left you? And perhaps I should ask as well, what do you feel like you have, have gained from the journey of being inside uh, Maria's head and, and creating these characters? Has it changed you at all? Have you, uh, do you experience things differently now? It has changed me. It's changed me in so many ways I couldn't have expected, but I guess that's part of why I'm a writer. I'm I'm very exploratory in my approach. I never set out with a a fixed story or plan in mind, and I certainly don't write as an exercise. It's 
much more uh, interrogative, much more exploratory than that. I, I'm definitely more Italian than I was when I started. And that's, I know that sounds like a silly thing to say, but I grew up Italian in Australia. And of course, you know, that means I'm, I'm a bit Italian, a bit Australian. And I've lived in London for more than half my life. So I'm a bit of London as well. But having done the research for this book and lots of trips to Italy, and um, most of the research was done in Italian, Italian websites, Italian books, and in Italy. So all that reference material that I had to understand and get to the bottom of meant that I was just immersed in Italian culture and Italian language for for years. So that's definitely had an effect on me. Um, in a strange process of becoming a bit more self-aware as well, I think I understand a bit more where I get my obsessive work ethic from um, because these are my people, you mm. know, I'm tapping into my rootstock here. These are, these are the kinds of people, you know, from whom, you know, I, I eventually you know, come. So my overwork, my sense that I need to work hard in order to feel useful or valuable, I'm sure that comes from there as well. Um, that connection with nature and that inability to waste a scrap of food. I still, I am that person. I cannot waste a leaf of lettuce, you know. <laughs> It's uh, somewhere along the way, I, I do believe that these, these values get passed down, not just through conditioning, but possibly even somewhere in the, the brain. I'm waiting for the neuroscientists to tell us <laughs> how and when and what. So in that sense, I guess I've sort of understood a bit more about who I am and where I come from. And I've got to understand a lot more about the Veneto as well. And that matters to me because I've always said, you know, my family comes from the Veneto, but... Um, growing up in suburban Melbourne, you're quite far from that. You always sense it, and it's part of your psyche, but it is far away. And I feel delighted to have captured something of an oral history because the people that I'm talking about here, some of them are no longer, many, most of them are no longer alive. They were sometimes relatives, great aunts, great uncles. Um, strangers that I met at a wedding, people who got sat next to me at a sagra celebrating the local porcino, all sorts of people, people who are relatives, people who are not relatives, you know, all sorts of people giving me that sense of their lived experience. And I feel very honoured with that. And they were very delighted to tell me those experiences. And, you know, they knew me as a writer. And they were very happy to get out my notebook and to, for me to get out my notebook and see me write uh, and listen to what they were saying. And... So in that sense, it's made me feel quite honoured to in some way record what mattered to them and their way of life and something that's disappeared. Well, Elise Valmobita, thank you so much for joining us on Backstory. I highly commend your wonderful book, The Madonna in the Mountains. And uh, I really hope uh, to see more work by you in future. Are, are you working on something now? I'm, I've got little sparks of little ideas, but nothing yet. This, this book has, has really consumed me for so long and it's been, as you can imagine, um, very busy with exciting developments like this award and you know the various book festivals and the different language editions and all of that. It's been um, quite consuming. But I'm thinking after, after this trip and after this award, I'll go back to London and have a very quiet few weeks where I just ponder next steps, see where I go. Well, if it's uh, half a uh, the journey that you take us on, um, I can't wait to read more. Uh, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been really, really lovely. An honour. Thank you. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
You're listening to 3RRR. The show is Backstory and I'm your host, Mel Cranenberg. It's been an incredible two years or so for local independent imprint Brow Books since they opened shop. But last year particularly, they put out a truly astonishing crop of books. Among them, Mary Looning's visceral masterpiece, One Good Turn, Jamie Marina Lau's Pink Mountain on Locust Island, and my unabashed favourite book of last year, and possibly all time, Mm. it's yet to be seen, Maria Tamarkin's Axiomatic. Both of the latter taking home very well-deserved awards. Joining me to talk about the phenomenal success of Brow Books is publisher Sam Cooney. Sam, welcome to Backstory. Oh, thanks, Mel. Look, I've been kind of just basically banging on about the books that you're putting out most of last year, I think. Yeah, I like them too, which is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, we did a lot of books last year, too many, some would say, including us. Uh, and But every single one of those books sort of demanded to be published and why do things in an organised way when you can just do them all at once? So this is a question I've been dying to ask you, which is that how is it physically impossible without bending space and time or having something, you know, that perhaps would have been used by Hermione from Harry <laughs> Potter to do so? Did you get that number of books and good quality books that have obviously been properly cooked and edited out in such a short space of time? Uh, yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. I think it was a lot of uh, sheer will and determination, but there is a lot of energy on the ground. We're a bunch of uh, people who care deeply about the industry and about what's going out into the world of, of books and what readers what readers get a chance to read. And yeah, each of those books last year or the last couple of years have come to us through different means. Some of them have come, like you said, fully cooked. Some of them have taken months and months and months and months to be edited and, and honed, and that's the normal process. Uh, I would say that, uh, yeah, these things come in ebbs and flows, and we are adamant that we aren't going to hit a quota or not going to aim for a certain amount of books every year. And so far, we've had one in 2016, two, uh, three in 2017, and eight in 2018. And who knows what we'll do this year. And we should probably know already, but some might say that we still don't know how many books we'll publish this year. And like that's kind of where the lifted brow and the whole organisation has always been, you know, ordered or, you know, ordered chaos, I would say, is kind of central to the way we do things. And we are trying to professionalise all the time. But that being said, when a book comes along that says, put me out now, then it's hard to kind of ignore that or to think, we should schedule that for 2021 because, you know, we don't want to wait. Who knows what happened? will happen between now and then. So just to contextualise it for those who don't know much about this industry or in particular Brow Books, uh, Brow Books started off as the uh, publisher of The Lifted Brow, which mm-hmm. is a literary journal that comes out quarterly. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favourites, I have to say as well, um, incredibly well done given the, the kind of strictured funding hmm. that it works on. Brow Books is kind of spun off from that mm-hmm. um, and the quality uh, is of the same level. There's a lot of, you know, very dedicated people involved in in both of those pub, yeah, hugely uh, dedicated entities um people doing things for far less than they should mm-hmm. um which is extraordinary so really uh, to put this to frame it you have this quite uh, impressive output mm-hmm. two books that have been listed for major literary prizes but for a tiny independent publisher that's been around for two years what it really begs the question about is why aren't other publishers doing the same thing with more money uh i'm, I'm reticent to always be critical of other publishers we did we came along and started publishing books you know some would say we didn't need to be doing any more after doing the journal we do a, a lot of web pu- web publishing. Um, we do events. We run a writing prize or two, uh, but we just were realizing that we were becoming 
slightly less and less excited or more like less and less excited by the Australian books that were coming out in recent years. And it is to do with, you know, the certain market conservatism that is uh, frankly necessary when you run a, a bigger publishing house. You have to publish enough books and make enough sales to pay all your salaries and, uh, and all the overheads. Um, but for us, we just kept hearing more and more from Lifted Brow contributors and other writers that we thought were some of the most vital writers with the most interesting and provocative and necessarily provocative ideas and, and viewpoints, finding that they were hitting a bit of a ceiling and weren't finding their way into the book publishing industry. And in this country, uh, we don't have a magazine or a web publishing kind of industry that can sustain a writer for years and years, and there, is not, there aren't many kind of regular paid jobs out there. So if you're not putting a book out quite regularly, you, your career can suddenly start to look and, and it can end really as a writer of somebody of someone with interesting and, and you know outside of the mainstream ideas. So uh, we're a small press, and a small press allows us to to be more flexible. But we're also you know we're not paying our staff as much or as we would like, and um, and you know many of our staff are volunteers, and that's you know that's the biggest problem at the Brow, and we want to fix that up. But um, we just thought that it's better that these books come out in an imperfect way than not to come out at all. And, uh, and that was a kind of our experience that these books weren't being published. And, and other publishers around the country are doing terrific work, but there was a giant gap there that we saw. And, and we thought, well, you know, what's better than complaining is to do, go and do something about it. If you just join us, you're listening to Backstory on 3 Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm joined by Sam Cooney, who is the publisher at Brow Books, uh, a publisher punching well above its weight in terms of the output. On that topic, you actually have um, done something that I've really noted. There are some incredible mid-career writers or late-career writers, women largely, who have been, I think, uh, either woefully overlooked by the publishing industry or, you know, underappreciated generally. Um, Among them is Maria Tamarkin, who is an author that I've long thought of as just one of the the best writers in this country. under the Brow Books uh, publication, her book Axiomatic has received, I think, the recognition and accolades it richly deserves. Um, also, we have Mary Lunig um, mm-hmm. that I can mention, and I think now you've just put out Mandy Ord, mm. um, uh, a uh, obviously um, more in the frame of like graphic novel uh, writing. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about that have you very particularly gone in to try and um, remedy a situation that you've seen or was that just you hopefully trying to grab these excellent writers that were luckily available i'd say a bit of column a and a bit of column b but it hasn't been so deliberate like i think it's fallen under the the larger aegis of we want to represent underrepresented writers and as we all know um, women fall in that category generally in publishing in this country and around the world and then women as they get older in every industry i would say but especially you know in the arts and entertainment industries and in book publishing they can start to be dismissed or 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 even more importantly if their books are still coming out they're being published promoted marketed reviewed and regarded and and then read because you know readers are at the behest of jacket copy and cover design and marketing as well as reviews and they they get to talked about in a different way and i think they do get dismissed and we all know that if a you know a male novelist puts out a book it'll be called a gritty realist but a woman puts out the exact same text and it'll have a different cover and it'll be called domestic you know a domestic kind of novel and or a family novel or something and so we, it hasn't been so deliberate that we sat down and wrote on a big bitches big, big piece of butcher's paper that we would you know target or or anything that a certain type of of writer but 
it happens that these kinds of writers fit the brief that we, we see as the most important books or, or writing that needs to be published right now. That's really great. I, I do want to also talk about your, interna- your international output, um, books in translation um, that you have gone after. How have you selected them and, you know, why? Yeah, we have um, a couple of terrific people, Elizabeth Breyer and Paul Arabul at the moment, who are working on our translations kind of arm department, I would say, which makes it sound more formal than it is. The, we put a translation out ourselves last year, uh, Intan Paramedita's Apple and Knife, for Indonesian uh, short stories that had been published in a couple of sh- different collections in, in Indonesian over there. And to put it as sh- briefly as possible, we see a lot of Western European and American, uh, Western European, sorry, and then translations from kind of those parts of the world um, very readily. Uh, Latin American and South American writing gets translated pretty readily and is available on bookshelves here but pretty easily asia pacific and and the south pacific and all those kinds of regions which are the region that australia sits in you try and find a, a novel you know before eka Konyawan, you couldn't find an indonesian book in an australian bookstore now there's two there's eka and there's intan where we've been hunting around recently for for some thai novels um you know we want to see more vietnamese we want to see stuff from the islands we just feel like there is a shifting of the world and you know a tilting of the axis so to speak that we would love to be a part of and and we think it's kind of again fits the brief that if we are going to do any translations that they should be from parts of the world that are underrepresented and Australians will benefit from culturally and and aesthetically of course but also you know actually getting some insight into the lived experiences of people in parts of the world that we're much closer to geographically. Yeah that's really fantastic. Talk to me about what's coming up for Brow Books because I have no doubt uh, yep. they're going to come in and I'm going to get equally excited. Uh, and actually, just before you do, though, I have to... I really want to comment on just how much I love your covers. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about them because they're, they're quite simple covers but they're, they're very, there's a very strong sort of um, visual kind of consistency that you've got. Yeah, I, I've always loved um, small presses where you can spot their books across the room uh, and there's different ways you can do that. One of my favourites is Fitzcarraldo Press in the UK where they don't put covers on their books at all. They just make their non-fiction blue and their fiction white and that's all they do. And uh, and it's, you know, probably the easiest way and the cheapest way to do it, but I much prefer, you know, covers that are, um, I think, covers that are more suggestive, uh, maybe more thematic, but don't really kind of try and aim to tell you much about the book. They more kind of give you a feeling in your gut. And I feel like the modern... Uh, book cover design is you know is a one that is probably more in your face it's more about big colors and big type and that's good for some kinds of books but I feel like we wanted to both have an identity that you could sit each of our books side by side and see that there was that they were brow books books that there was an aesthetic there but also that um that we were you know harking back a little bit maybe to the past even you know I love covers from the 50s 60s and 70s that are simpler you know, you don't know what the book's about really when you see the cover, except that you know you want to open it, and then by the time you finish the book, the cover makes complete sense. While you're talking, I'm, I'm actually flicking through to try and see who the designer is. Who is yeah. the designer? We have a couple of designers who've worked on the books. Um, our main designer and creative director at the moment is a guy named Brett, Brett Weeks. We've had Rosie Mills as well doing these. But our design process is one that's really collaborative. The publishing industry likes to say that design process is a collaborative, but... Uh, and I know the lived experiences of many authors is that it isn't as collaborative as they would like. We actually put into our contracts that things like the design has to be collaborative with our authors, and um, and that means that they are involved from get-go, from concept design all the way through. That cover of Apple and Knife, which you've got in your hand there, the, 
the hand grabbing the goo or the the gack or whatever it is was some one we just did ourselves in the back room of one of our editor's house her partner is a photographer um we looked up on youtube how to make goo and made a bunch of different ones <laughs> mixing all kinds of, i think the winning recipe was something like eye contact lens solution with oh, it was a bit of flour and then you know there was a whole bunch of different ones and we eventually came came to it and then a friend of ours stood on a pedestal for a few hours and squeezed things while we took photos of her arm so yeah it worked out really well but we felt like that cover suggested so much about what the book could be about but really it's an invitation for you to open it and find out uh, I think uh, on that note, we are actually going to have to leave people to find out what's coming out through Braille Books. Um, I very much recommend people um, keep an eye on that. Um, Sam, is there anywhere that people can look if they're interested? Oh, yeah, of course, wherever online. Um, I'd love to see people uh, uh, jump online and, and, and you know click through on any of those books. We are, are going to be at the Melbourne Art Book Fair at the National Geographic, what am I calling, NGV in, uh, in March. But, um, yeah, anywhere you can find good books and all of Melbourne's incredible independent bookstores where we're there in pride of place on the, on the shelves. Well, Sam, congratulations and thank you so much for joining yeah. us on Backstory. Thanks for having me, Mel. That's pretty much uh, all we have time for today. Uh, it's just happened so quickly. Uh, I'd like to thank my guests, uh, Elise Valmore-Beda and Sam Cooney. Three. Triple. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website, or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.